Well, I have a, maybe a little bit of a morbid question for you, uh, but why do we die? You know, what, what, what are some causes of death? What's the reason that we die? And we might say, like, well, there's natural causes, you know, like we get old and our hearts give out or something like that. Um, there could be tragic accidents, you know, having a, a car accident and dying or having something happen on the job. Uh, could be poor choices, choices we've made that's led us down a path toward death. Or, I mean, you know, God forbid, we could be murdered, like somebody else could actually kill us. And so I looked up, you know, what are some of the leading causes of death? And I found this list from 2021. What would you guess would be like the number one leading cause of death in 2021? Heart disease. Depression. Heart disease. It's heart disease. That was the top of the list. Second is cancer. Third in 2021 was COVID-19. Fourth, accidents or unintentional injuries. Five, strokes. Six, chronic lower respiratory disease. Seven, Alzheimer's disease. Eight, diabetes nine, chronic liver disease, and ten, nephritis, nephrotic syndrome, and nephrosis. And so just those, some of those things that this is why we die. These are the leading causes of death in 2021. I'm sure they don't change very much. Maybe COVID-19 has gone down quite a bit, I'm sure. But leading causes of death. And we, might, we ask, why did, G, or why did we die? But also, well, why did Jesus die? Uh, we know how. Uh, we talk about it all the time. We're just saying about the cross and the cross there. Um, so we know how he died, but why did he die? And today, if you're not familiar with the church calendar, is Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, uh, as uh, Maggie read for us, it's often called the triumphal entry. Is when G- it's the last week of Jesus' earthly life, uh, where he is going to ride into Jerusalem on a Sunday uh, with all the other people who are traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, which would have happened later in the week. And so he rides into Jerusalem on a Sunday, uh, and we, we have this scene that we just read in our minds. And people lay out the palm branches. There is uh, Jericho is one of the towns you walk through on the way there. That was known to have palm trees, so they probably picked them in Jericho and brought them. So you have all these people laying down these palm branches in front of Jesus, like rolling out the red carpet or the green carpet, like here's the guy we want to welcome in on this week when we're all here for Passover. But I want to ask a question. What was going on for Jesus on Palm Sunday? Like we always have this picture of like the palm branches and people excited him riding in Jerusalem. But what was going on for Jesus in that moment? Because we know about the anguish of the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying the night when he was going to be betrayed, hours before he died, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We know about the silence at the rigged trial in front of the religious leaders, that he was just silent before them. We know about the pain of the beating that he received from the Roman soldiers. We know about the burden of carrying his own cross, this huge piece of wood, carrying his own cross up to a hill uh, to, have, to die on it. And we know the suffering of the crucifixion and his cry to God when he was being crucified, nailed to a cross, naked and ashamed. What was going on for Jesus on Palm Sunday? And we have the crowds. This is page nine, or 878 if you wanted to look at it. We see the crowds... Uh, calling out Jesus' praises. It says, uh, so verses, uh, verse 37, verse 36 of Luke chapter 19. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so we know about that. But then right after that, we hear uh, 
And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, some religious leaders, people he's had uh, tension with for quite a while now, uh, said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And so you have these people praising Jesus, but there's also something else going on where there's some Pharisees in the crowd saying, Rebuke these people who are saying these things that are treating you like a king. Rebuke them. Tell them not to do this. And then Jesus responds. He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And then it might surprise us, what is Jesus doing as he rides into Jerusalem? Verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. So you have people praising. You have this mixed emotional scene. You have people praising. You have the Pharisees that are agitated, saying, rebuke your disciples. Then you have Jesus weeping. He doesn't have a smile on his face. He's not saying, like, yeah, this is it. Like, this is what we were doing. He's weeping over this city. And why is he weeping? In verses 42 through 44, he, ex- we, he explains as he's weeping and saying what's going on in his head. He, he knows they're going to reject him. He knows as he rides in this city that the people of the city, especially the leaders, of the religious, the Jewish uh, religious system are going to reject him. And he's crying because of the destruction that is going to come upon them for rejecting him. And we think of a a verse like 1 Timothy 2.4 where it says, God our Savior desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so Jesus weeps for these people that are going to kill him. He's weeping for them. Sad that he desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, desires that none should perish. And so he's weeping for these people that are going to reject him as a false king, that they're going to say, you're not our king, you're not the one that God sent, our salvation isn't found in you. And so he's weeping about that. And there's many instances in scripture where we might expect God to be angry, but actually what we find him to be is sad. For instance, the right before the flood, Noah's Ark and the flood, God sees all the evil on earth, And his response isn't, I'm so mad at all of them. His response is that it saddened his heart, grieved his heart. And so why did Jesus come into Jerusalem knowing this? People were going to reject him. They were going to kill him. In a very, you know, the the cross was designed as a very effective instrument of torture and execution. And so he knows this is going to happen to him. He's seen people crucified before, walked by them. Because Rome would say, we crucify people who are... You know, rejecting our laws, rejecting Caesar, because now we're going to show you this is what happens if you <laughs> come against us, if you aren't, don't stay in line. And so they would have walked past people crucified before. And he walks into this city knowing that's what's going to happen. And so why did he go? Why did he choose to die? Why did Jesus die? I want to look at a second pres- passage, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. This is page 1008 of Uh, The Black Bibles, if you're using one of those. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, page 1008. And the people this was written to are experiencing pain and hardship and challenges and resistance and hostility toward them because of their love for Jesus. Because they have a relationship with Jesus, their relationship with other people has become hostile uh, and Harmful, And so there's, this is written to a group of people that are experiencing suffering because of their relationship with Jesus. Uh, and, you know, a multiple, it's kind of like a spectrum of how much they're suffering, but they're suffering in some way. And the book uses this race metaphor, that when you're in the middle of the race, and when it's hard, you're going to be tempted to quit. 
you're going to be tempted to quit running the race of being Jesus' disciples. And so that's a big metaphor they use in the book. And the message is, don't quit. <laughs> don't quit the race in the middle when it gets hard. Endure. Endurance is a big word in this book. Why? Because Jesus is better. Any other thing that you would turn to, you're going to give up Jesus for what? All these things that are just so much less that can't give you the things that you're actually looking for. Jesus is better than all those things that you are alternatives. And what's waiting at the end of this race is eternal rest. Just keep going. Cross the finish line. Don't give up. Endure. So when we come to Hebrews chapter 11, right before chapter 12 that we're going to talk about, uh, we see in these verses, uh, in verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 11, it says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. So we get a definition of faith here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of, of things not seen. Uh, when we were uh, going through the adoption process for our first son, somebody gave us this little uh, thing that Martin Luther said. Uh, and it said, faith is taking the next step even when you don't see it on the staircase. I, I'm probably making it up. But it's like, you know, you're going up the staircase <laughs> and you're... Does that not make sense? I don't know. It's like you're going up the staircase and you don't know there's a next step. And so faith is taking the next step even though you don't see that there's a stair there to catch you. It's the assurance of things not seen. Paul in Romans 8 says that who hopes for what they've seen? That's not hope. We hope for things that we haven't seen. And faith is the assurance of it, the conviction of things not seen. And he says, the people of old, the people in the Old Testament, they received a commendation for this kind of faith, that they were living on a promise and expecting it, convicted that it was going to come about. And in this chapter, chapter uh, 11, later on in verse 6, it says, without faith it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. People who have faith please God and he commends them for it. He rewards them for it. And in this chapter, chapter 11, by faith, the word by faith is said 18 times. For instance, verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed uh, when he was called to go out to place to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, and so on. 18 times, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. These people had this faith, and by that faith, they took these actions, even though they didn't have it all, didn't see how it was going to turn out, but they believed God and trusted him. And so this whole chapter is telling us, these are people who endured. These are people who crossed the finish line. These are people who are commended by their faith, and they crossed over into God's rest that he welcomed into. And then, we come to verse 12, after all these examples of people who endured, verse 12 then, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, says this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so it says, therefore, there, you know, therefore what? Why, there, what is that connected to? It's like when somebody says a therefore, you have to ask, well, what came before it that it's connecting it to? It says, this, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, uh, that you have these witnesses. Witnesses to what? Chapter 11. What were they witnesses to? They're witnesses to where faith gets you, that they crossed the finish line. We endured, and then we entered into what God had promised us, and they were commended for it. God rewarded those who have faith that finishes. And so, therefore, what? Since we have this great cloud of witnesses, therefore, what? What we ought we to do? He's 
uh, the author says, let us lay aside every weight. And so, you know, when you're running, you don't really want to have a lot of weight on you, typically. I know there's probably types of running where you're carrying something heavy or whatnot, but typically it's like, I don't know, if you, if you ever ran cross-country or track, it's like you got like the smallest shorts, at least they used to be, like the smallest shorts and like the lightest material, and it's like, wow, why is everyone wearing that? It's like, well, the less weight, and like you can just, it's kind of just your body moving. Uh, and it says, so therefore, uh, let's lay aside two things, every weight, the things that might hold us down, that maybe we're trying to hold on to. It's like, I want to drag this with me as I walk this faith with Jesus. And it says, no, let go of that. You can't drag that in, you know, open arms. Open hands, letting go, but also sin that trips us up, the sin that clings, you know, like a rope or uh, something around your legs. Like, let you got to let go of the sin, you got to let go of the things that are you're trying to hold on to as you run this race and that stuff. You just got to realize that is not going to get you what you're desiring. Jesus is better than all that, and so let go. And then another let us. So it's let us uh, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and then let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The race. That we're in this race of faith, run with endurance the race set before us. Uh, how? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so it's like, when you're running a race, I don't know how many of you are runners. I was, well, I ran, wasn't good at it. So I wouldn't call myself a runner. <laughs> but uh, running from the police, no, not that. Um, <laughs> it's funny how I get, I have a lot more fun running after a frisbee than just running with nothing in front of me. I love playing ultimate frisbee and you throw a frisbee and it's like, I can do that for an hour. But if I'm like just running with no frisbee, it's like three minutes. This is, we've got to go, it must be two out, two, two miles by now. I've been running for three minutes. I feel terrible, you know, but if there's a frisbee, I don't know, I'm kind of like a dog, I guess. Um, <laughs> but running, you, you look at the thing, you keep your eyes on the prize. It's like, I want to finish. This is the, I want to cross that finish line. I want to get the reward. I want to say, I ran this marathon. Or for me, I want to catch that frisbee. And it's like, I'm keeping the eyes on the goal, on the prize. And the finish line is Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's where you're running to. Look to him. You're trying to get to him. And it says that he's the founder, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, of our faith. That Jesus is the one who creates the foundation of our faith. He's the one that brings it into our lives. He's the one that perfects it, that brings it to maturity. It's as we're looking to him that he starts that faith, he gets it going in us, and the rights of faith is looking to Jesus in trusting him from start to finish. We, we use the word surrender as a good word that just captures all the things in the Bible. There's, there's faith, there's obedience, there's trust, there's uh, worship, there's you know all these words in, or fear of the Lord. It's like all of them can be captured in surrender. It's that we're saying, God, you are everything, you're number one, and I'm following you with all that I have. So faith starts and ends with Jesus. He's the reason we have faith. He's the one in whom we have faith. And he's blazed the trail of faith before us as our forerunner, that he's pioneered the way, he's made the race possible. Running, And we're running a race he already ran. So then we ask, well, what, what race did he run? If he's the founder and perfecter, he's the one that's already ran it, we look to him. And we're told in the rest of verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so Jesus' race was to the cross. And not just to the cross, but past the cross. If you can kind of think of a race outlined, it's like, okay, um, right here we're at Palm Sunday, and then if you keep going down the race, it's like, here's the cross. Um, but then after that, 
That's where Jesus was looking. He was looking past it. For the joy set before him, looking past the cross, he endured the cross. He ran the race. This part was hard, but he got to the finish line. He was looking past it to the joy that was set before him. Now he's seated at the right hand of God. That now he, that was where he's getting to, the joy of being back with his father, of having accomplished the plan of redemption. You notice a couple overlaps here with us. He says, it says, for the joy set before him, and look, look back at uh, verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. And it says, he endured the cross, and we're supposed to endure. And so there's this connection. We have this race set before us, and we look to Jesus, the one who also ran the race set before him, and now we follow in his footsteps. And so why did Jesus die? We're told here, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, that when he was coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he saw the cross, and he's like, I'm going to endure that, but I'm looking at the joy set before me after it of what's going to come about. And so what was the joy set before him? We can get it from these words. We're told, uh, seated at the right hand of God. So being at the right hand of God is he's now, he's entered the, the he's had the joy of entering God's glorious rest. That's a big theme in Hebrews, which really fits well, because talking about this race. You're running this race, and what happens after the race? Oh, you just stop, and you take a drink, you get to stop running. There's this rest, and so this image of, like, we're in this hard fight, this hard race, this hard battle, and it's, I mean, I mean, the Bible talks all the time about the Christian life is you're living in a battle, and that's why it feels, that's why you're hurt all the time. That's why we're getting killed all the time. That's why it's so hard, because we're living in a battle. We're running a race, and it says, get to the end. He's entered the joy uh, of God's glorious rest, of being with God, uh, eternal life, knowing Him in His presence. But it also says seated, seated at the right hand of God. And that's a, something in, that talks about in Hebrews quite a bit, making something out of this word seated. Because when you're seated, you know, it's like, okay, I'm done. Connor got done leading us in songs, and he's seated, he sat down. And like when we sit down, it's like the work is done. He's seated at God's right hand, because as he prayed, sat on the cross, it is finished. I'm seated. Seated. The work of paying for people's sin is done. And so he experiences the joy of entering into God's presence, his glorious rest, and the joy of accomplishing the work God gave him to do. He prayed, your will, not mine, I want to do. And he said, it is finished. And so he also ran the race to open a way for us to enter in God's glorious rest. We just heard last week, Luke chapter 15, why is Jesus hanging out with all these outcasts, with all these sinners, all these people with broken lives. He's hanging out with them because those are the people that need to be sought. They're lost. He needs to seek them and save them. And he says every time somebody repents and every time somebody turns from the living life their own way and turns to doing it God's way, uh, he says there's just this party in heaven. And so that's part of the joy too is I'm bringing these people with you. I, me, I'm going into God's glorious rest and I'm bringing all these people with me. And so he sits down. It's finished and these people are going to be there with me, with this party in heaven, because they've all turned to God. He came to seek and save. And when these people go from lost to found, there's joy. And so there's the joy of entering God's glorious rest and the joy of bringing others with him. And the word actually used here says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And I already mentioned how shameful it was. I mean, it's like you're paraded out in front of people your clothes are stripped off, uh, and then you're put on this cross with no way to cover yourself 
And you just have people watching you die, walking by you, watching you die, seeing you just exposed. And it was a way of complete shame, shame of um, being nailed to the cross, just even, you know, in right alongside the pain of it, but there's also the shame of it as well. And so this word despising, uh, this definition uh, is what I was given in a, one of my dictionaries um, the, for the Greek word, is to consider something not important enough to be an object of concern when evaluated against something else. You could also uh, translate it as uh, to care nothing for the shame or to disregard the shame or to be unafraid of the shame. So it's to consider something not important enough to be an object of concern when evaluated against something else. So what does he evaluate the shame of the cross against? It says, for the joy, for the joy set before him, he despised the cross. He evaluated against the joy and said, I'm just going to disregard it. This is no concern to me uh, that there's something far better. And so when it's evaluated against the joy set before him, it's like there's nothing better than this. You go into Romans uh, chapter 8, 16 through 18, that there is this, if we're going to follow Jesus, there's going to be suffering like he did, but it's not in comparison to the what will be given to us at the end of the race. Or you can look at 2 Corinthians 4.16 that Paul is saying, I've been, the Apostle Paul is one of the followers of Jesus who endured a lot of pain. And he's like, here's my list of things, of ways I've suffered for Jesus, but it's just a light and momentary affliction compared with what I'm going to get at the end of it. And so basically we're told there's things worth suffering for. And Jesus said the cross was a suffering. The joy set before me was worth suffering the cross for. And for us as Jesus' followers, we are invited. I mean, it's, it's astonishing how many passages and teachings in the Bible just say, expect to suffer. And of course, there's a spectrum. And it's not just like suffering. Uh, mostly, a lot of the suffering in the Bible, some of it's like you know physical or poverty or things like that. But often it's talking about what's the world a world that hates Jesus, what is that world going to do to people who love Jesus? And there's a spectrum. You know, in some areas you could be beheaded, killed, crucified, but we can also suffer other things like just people not liking us, turning their back on us, not talking to us anymore. And so there's kind of like you know, a spectrum of how uh, severe that suffering for Jesus can be. And so our question is, is, is Jesus worth suffering for? Is enduring the cross that before us worth suffering for. So I want to end with, why would we die? Why did Jesus die for the joy set before him? So why would we die? And so we have our own race. The, this passage tells us, Hebrews chapter 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We're told, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. And so uh, we're following in his footsteps. And Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, Connor just preached on this two weeks ago, you want to come after me, you have to renounce all you have. You have to be willing to deny yourself and take up your cross. And we, I don't know, that taking up your cross, I often actually hear that more in like a joking, well, I know it's my cross to bear. And it's like, well, it's like a really crazy thing to tell someone to take up their cross. Like, it's like, take up your electric chair. Uh, take up your waterboard. Uh, you know, take up your, this form of torture, this form of execution. Just take it up, except that the world wants to put your faith to death. It wants to put you to death. It wants to bury your Savior. Uh, but he's alive. He's alive. 
And he says, take, you're going to have to take up your cross too. And so why would we do it? Why would we do Why would we suffer like that? Why would we be willing to lose relationships, money, property, respect, uh, people liking us, thinking highly of us? I mean, you think about going on cable news and telling people, like, yeah, I, I follow Jesus. He's alive. And it affects all my life. I talk to him every day. I ask him what he wants in my life. It sounds crazy. People are going to ridicule us for that. So why would we do it? So we're going to look at one more passage. It's just a way to think about what does it look like to, to die, to take up our cross. Uh, it's on page 809 of the Black Bible. It's Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses, I believe, 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1, uh, 1 through 12. This is the, these are called the Beatitudes. Uh, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest recorded sermon. And I was asking myself, well, what, you know, take up your cross, it's just like, I don't think, it's hard for us to understand that, what that actually means. And so I was like, oh, what, what would actually give us this other? And the, the Beatitudes are what came to me. So page 809, the Black Bibles, or Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And basically there is this pattern. Uh, Jesus is starting off a Sermon on the Mount, and he's telling people this is what life looks like in the kingdom. Of this is what God's kingdom looks like, how we treat each other, how we relate to God. And then he starts it off with these Beatitudes, which is you know, just a fancy name for something that starts with the word blessed, um, blessed, or the good life. This is the good life. The good life is found in this. One person translated it as uh, blessed being wonderful news for the poor in spirit, wonderful news for those who mourn. But blessed, this is the blessed life, the good life. And so they have this pattern. The first part is the stuff that's experiencing death and suffering and taking up our cross. But blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? And then it goes into the second part, which is the joy, the life, uh, what God is offering, the rest that he offers us. And so it first says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And poor in spirit is, uh, there's, and all these are something we let go of. We're letting go of pride. We're letting go of coming to God on our own terms and merit. And if we're going to be poor in spirit, it's like, I'm not rich in spirit. God, here's how much I have to offer. Like, look how rich in spirit I am. Like, please bless me. And we come poor in spirit. I'm empty. I'm like a beggar coming to you with nothing in my hands to offer you. But I'm saying, God, I want you. I want to receive from you. And so it's humbling ourselves. Let's surrendering our pride, our, our own coming to God on our own terms and our merits, surrendering that we have anything to offer him, coming as beggars, knowing our need for God. And he says, those poor, come to be poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And notice it says, is. And then all of them are going to say, future shall be. So the kingdom is for those who are in spirit right now, but also there's something future to it. And so the next one is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so we're letting go of this world giving us the life we want, that we mourn because this is not how things are supposed to be. Our bodies, our relationship, how we destroy God's creation. Like this way of life is not how it's supposed to be. And so blessed are those who mourn, who are saying, I'm letting go of this life, this world giving me the life I want. I'm saying this is not how it's supposed to be. So I'm letting go of it, and I'm mourning, and I'm grieving that this world is broken, and I'm broken, and I've you know, hurt people. It's not how it's supposed to be. Thirdly, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so this is, to be meek means you let go of your rights. You let go of wrongs done against you. You let go of power and entitlement and getting your own way. Meekness isn't a, like, we might think of that as like, oh, a little, you know, wimpy mouse or something. But meekness is really power under control. 
It's like we shouldn't be like, I'm a child of God. I'm a disciple of Jesus. You can't talk to me like that. No. God gives us great power in saying, this is who I am, and this is who you are. You are my child. You're inheriting the earth and the kingdom. But we don't walk around entitled or you know, thumping our chests or just uh, showing people our power. But we're meek. We let go of getting our own way. Fourthly, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so we let go of this world being good and right. Is that like things aren't going to get all corrected in this life. There's going to be injustices, things that happen to us where we're like, they need to pay for that. And God says, leave it to me. Leave judgment to me. Don't take it upon yourself. But what we're supposed, to, but we can still hunger and thirst for righteousness for the day that God is going to make all wrongs right. And so we let go of living according to the pattern of this world of like, I'm going to pay people back who wrong me. But no, we say we hunger and thirst for righteousness for God to bring righteousness, for God to make right what's wrong. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So this is letting go of those attitudes that keep us from caring about another person, about other people. It's to embrace compassion, kindness, and forgiveness. Letting go of those things that keep us from showing mercy, from showing love, forgiving help. Blessed are the most merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Next, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so we let go of worldly status and worldly stuff that pull our hearts away from God. And not just this outer cleanness, like we clean up our lives, we wear nice clothes on Sunday, we don't swear, you know, whatever it is. And it's like, no, pure in heart, that we've given our hearts to God, that that's, we want to be singularly, purely following Him, that our, you know, 100% extra virgin olive oil, I don't know what that means, but I think it's trying to say, it's just olive oil in here. So it's like, what is my heart going after? It's like, is this just God in here, 100%? Pure going after God and letting go of worldly stuff and worldly status that pull our hearts away from him. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. And so we let go of a desire to seek payback when we're wrong. That God is a peacemaker, doing all that he can. Romans 12 says, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. Like you can't always get a relationship reconciled, you can't always get a relationship healed. But so far as it depends on you from your side of things, you be a peacemaker, letting go of seeking payback, not living as enemies of people, but instead loving them. Verse nine or verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we let go of the comfort, acceptance, and privileges of being friends with the world. James chapter 4 says, don't you know that if you're friends with the world, you can't be friends with God? And so we let go of the comfort, acceptance, and privileges that come with being friends with the world. And we live rightly in a world that's against God, that we live godly lives in a world that is anti-God. And lastly, the longest one, which is kind of reiterating uh, the same point. But notice that it started off, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's like, who does the kingdom belong to? Who does this future belong to that God wants to do, where he wants heaven, heaven's presence to be experienced on earth and to heal it? Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so we let go of keeping it a secret that Jesus is our king. 
We let go of the world loving us. We let go of what we have and what others think of us. Because Jesus says, if you love me, the world hated me, so that's how they're going to treat you. They're going to hate you too. And all these are really how to stop looking for the good life here and now. How to live by faith that it's the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. That God says, this is what's going to happen in this kingdom. And he says, if I'm following Jesus to the finish line, I'm going to, I'm going to be part of that. So I want to come back to just close with this image of, I talked about how I ran cross country. Not well, but I ran. I did stuff. I sweated. My legs moved. But it's interesting what he says here that... Uh, Cross country, so our coach, sometimes at practice, he would be running with us. If it was a longer run, he might run for a bit and then kind of drive his car up the next. But if you're in a race, like all along the race, uh, you find your coach just all of a sudden popping out behind, from behind you. He's like, Woo, go, Mitch! Like, how'd, how'd you get here? And then somehow it's like, you know, the next corner or something. He's there too. It's like, Where's Waldo? It kind of gives you a heart attack. But it's like, Wow! You, know, you know, cheering all along the way. But those different points along the course. And so it's both that. Looking to Jesus. Run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus. It's not just that he's there at the finish line, but we know he's there all along the way. All along the way. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16, we have a great high priest that we can approach who knows what it's like, how hard it is to live for him in this world. But there are going to be things that pull us away. There's, we're swimming against the current. And this high priest that we can come to, he can sympathize with us. So all the way along this run that we're doing, along the course, there's Jesus, you know, as our coach, as our great high priest saying, like, I'm in this with you. I know how hard it is. Keep going to the finish line. I'm here to help you. But then we also have a cloud of witnesses. And this isn't people who are spectators in the stands who came to watch you run the race. These are people who already ran the race. And so often teammates in cross country, they'll finish the race, uh, but then they don't go back to the tent and just hang out. They turn around and they go back to... Uh, Along the course, you know, I don't, not necessarily like a mile in, but a little ways along. So that as you're finishing, they're sitting there yelling, keep going, go Mitch, you've got this, like keep, push it now. And so these are a cloud of witnesses who want, run the race and turn around and come back along the course and now cheer us on. They're not spectators. These are teammates who finished and they turn around to stand along the course to cheer us on as our cheerleaders. And so we look back in the past of now we have even more, a bigger cloud of witnesses than when Hebrews was written. It was written 2,000 years ago. We look back in the past like other people have suffered for Jesus. People around the world are suffering for Jesus. And they're telling us, it's worth it. Keep going. You're almost there. Cross the finish line. And there's also a thing uh, where you can join running groups. When we are practice cross-country, you'd run as a team. Um, run through a course, but you can, you know, even now if you're not in cross country, you can join running groups where you're all running together. And if we went back to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, it says, uh, let's not stop getting together. Get together as long as it's today. Get together and exhort and encourage one another. And then again, Hebrews chapter 10, 24 through 25, don't give up meeting together as is the habit of some. And uh, I think sometimes we think like, Man, Sunday, that one-day commitment, that's a lot. But when you look at Hebrews 3, it's like every day get together to encourage each other because sin is, is going to grab you. It's going to try to pull you off course here. And so we need the encouragement every single day. And so as we run in a group, we're not running the race by ourselves. And so we have Jesus in this cloud of witnesses saying it's worth it. Endure. Persevere. And at the finish line, we have Jesus. And we're following in his steps, one step at a time, Seeing him at the end, looking forward to his embrace, his glory, 
that he's going to give to us, First Peter 1, we went through First Peter last year, that says, like, what's going to happen at the end? I know it's hard now, but wait for the end when you're going to receive praise and honor and glory. It's like, wait, wait a second, isn't that supposed to be what goes to Jesus? Well, no, only across the finish line. He's like, yes, you made it. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your master. And he praises us and honors us. And he says, you, you did it. And Jesus himself will honor us. He says, well done to us. And so we want to endure want to finish even when it's painful and hard. Let's pray. Father, we just confess that sometimes we don't always want to be to have a cost to following your son. That we'd rather avoid the discomfort, we'd rather avoid the odd looks. We want to be invited to all the events. We don't want to be left out because of our trust in you. But Lord, would you make us people who endure, who persevere? Would you keep our eyes on your Son as the one who ran the race before us and who now is with us as we run it individually and together as a body? In your Son's name we pray. Amen.